had to read language, not just on the surface, but in the subtext to get what was really being said, uh, and that um, language was a weapon. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. If, over the past 50 years, Australia had a national bard, it would be David Williamson. David has written 56 plays, including the dark social realist plays, such as A Conversation or Sanctuary, dramas such as Brilliant Lies, After the Ball, Amigos, Travelling North, Soulmates and Influence, and satire such as Dead White Males, Emerald City, Corporate Vibes and The Perfectionist. He's produced 20 screenplays, including Gallipoli and The Year of Living Dangerously, and five television miniseries. And now he's written an open and honest autobiography called Home Truths. Weighing in at 424 pages, it's unsparing about his career, his mistakes and his relationships. It's a real delight to have David join me on the podcast today. David, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. It's a pleasure, Andrew. So your love for theatre, you say, emerged uh, in part because of a great teacher. Uh, tell us about Alan Boot McLeod. Alan Booth McLeod, yes. He was, he was one of those teachers with enormous charisma. He strode into your classroom. He was like Spencer Tracy, one of the old screen heroes, and he fixed you with a stare and nobody dared misbehave. Uh, and then he proceeded to bring Shakespeare to life, which is, was amazing. I think we did Julius Caesar in Form 3 and Macbeth in uh, Form 4. And he'd act out the parts. He'd show that the emotional needs of those Shakespearean characters, the needs for love, status, revenge, all of those deep-rooted uh, uh, envy, all of those deep-rooted human emotional needs and proclivities were there in a society far distant from ours 400 years ago. And um, I was excited by this. I, I thought, well, uh, drama is gets to the essence of the human core. And uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, I was speaking to John Bell for a previous podcast episode and he told a very, very similar story about one teacher who was passionate about Shakespeare. Do you get a sense that those teachers are, are still in Australian schools in the same quantities? No, we still have reunions from those particular years because we were so impressed by the quality of the teaching. And this was a country high school, Bairnsdale in Victoria, a country state high school, stacked with quality teachers. Um, I doubt whether you'd get the same quality now. In those days, teachers were an almost revered profession. They were highly thought of, they were pretty well paid, they were pillars of the community, and everyone respected them. 
Um, I don't think it's quite the same now, although I think um, our state school system is, um, is a lot better uh, than some of its critics would have it. Uh, but it, certainly in those days, um, yes, good teaching was the norm, wherever you went. I mean, I, this was a country town in Victoria. There's sort of two themes I think about a lot in your uh, your work of uh, class and relationships, and, and you see both of those through your descriptions of your parents. Uh, you talk about your mum, Elvie, as being uh, especially class conscious when it came to her work in, uh, in retail and, and dealing with, in particular, with doctors' wives. What did she have against doctors' wives? My mother was a working class girl from Brunswick. Her father was a, a blacksmith. Um, the family lived through the Depression. She had sheets of newspaper stuff between her blankets to keep her warm in winter because there was no money for heating. Um, and she emerged from that, determined to distance herself from that life as quickly and as fast as possible. And in those days, if you're a working class girl, the quickest way to social mobility was to marry well, because there weren't many professions that were thought of as suitable for young women. They could be shop assistants, they could be primary school teachers, they could be nurses, but the horizons were limited. So marrying well was, was one way out of, um, uh, one way of social mobility. And my mother always had a secret desire to marry a doctor, but she failed. So my father paid it, got paid out for the rest of his life. He was, he was middle class sort of, he was a bank official, but he wasn't a doctor. So yes, doctor's wives were the bane of her life. And when she worked in Myers, the worst part about it was she got doctor's wives in her haberdashery department every day or every second day. And <laughs> she she used to pay them out. She said, oh, they, they strode around like bloody lady muck. And you also, as well as talking about your own relationships, you talk very candidly about your parents' relationship and, and you, you drop this extraordinary fact that your father carried for 58 years of marriage a photo in his wallet of his former fiancée. Why do you think he did that? Well, I think it didn't take him long to realise he'd made a major mistake. I think um, he was going out with this, um, uh, apparently from my grandmother, a lovely girl called Deborah, a school teacher. Um, she was charming and pretty, uh, but he made the mistake of trying to chat up the... the good sort, as someone told him, in the cake shop over the road, which was my mother. And my mother was, was waiting for a doctor to, to, to come in, but they didn't eat much cake. So father, uh, she said, OK, I'll go out with you. And then she found out he had a girlfriend and her ferocious competitive instincts kicked in and she was determined to, <laughs> <laughs> she was determined to displace Deborah which she did by uh, various um, wiles. Uh, and, um, but I think my father realised that marriage was pretty hellish with my mother after a year or two, and uh, that photo stayed in his wallet all his life. And he said to us, uh, look in my wallet, after I die, you'll understand a lot more about our marriage. Very sad, very sad, yeah. But, uh, but one time I said to him, well, do you regret it all? And he said, look... Look, I, I can't regret it because 
if I hadn't married your mother, you and your brother wouldn't be here. And, and that was very touching too. Did you draw on your parents much for your plays? I, I, I did. I did um, to some extent. I certainly didn't make an international institution out of my mother like Barry Humphreys did. But uh, occasionally I, I would, um, uh, in a couple of my plays, um, After the Ball and What If You Die Tomorrow, there were clear depictions of someone not unlike um, my mother. Um, but in a general sense, she gave me more than that um, because she alerted me very quickly early in life that language wasn't just a tool of communication, it was a weapon. And she was super sensitive to the attacks coming in towards her, not necessarily in the surface of what was being said, but in the deep subtext. She could root it out and she knew who, who was having a go at her. And the old working class uh, girl from Brunswick, her hackles rose and she fought back. So um, I quickly got the, the message that um, you had to read language, not just on the surface, but in the subtext to get what was really being said. Uh, and that um, language was a weapon and uh, in drama uh, conflict is everything and my household was um, constant conflict all the time because my father eventually had to fight back. Uh, it was never ending and uh, when Kristen first saw, uh, my present wife first saw my mother and father in action, she thought they were highly amusing. Well, my brother and I didn't find it highly amusing but um, she said you had... Um, after watching your parents, you had no alternative but to be a dramatist. <laughs> and a very Australian dramatist at that. Uh, and you talk about in Home Truths about the fact that when you began writing in the late 60s and early 1970s, there really wasn't much in the Australian uh, theatrical canon. There was Summer of the 17th Doll, um, but you, you talk about the influence of uh, plays like Boys in the Band uh, as... Uh, encouraging you to write about the Australia that uh, that you experienced. Um, what uh, what what shaped that that notion that you could put on the stage the the Australia you were experiencing? Well, um, Andrew, it wasn't um, just me. Um, there were a lot of aspiring writers, actors, uh, and directors um, around at the time who felt angry that they were virtually being locked off their own stages. Uh, our culture to some extent was controlled by Englishmen with English sensibilities. Both theater, major theatre companies were run by Englishmen. And our academia was stuffed with English academics in the English departments who came out preaching the gospel of F.R. Levis who said there are only five writers in history all of them English writers uh, or one quasi-English American who were worth reading. Uh, so incredibly elitist English overlay to our culture. And we just wanted to break through. We wanted our own stories to be told, our own voices. And luckily, Betty Burstall came back from New York, saw the off-off Broadway theatres specialising and hunting out for new exciting writing. And she said, look, until we start looking for our own writing, we'll never get it. So she started La Mama, a little um, ex-factory, um, and started looking for writing. And that was that 
served um, to allow an Australian voice for the first time to be heard continuously. That was what that theatre was for. Um, and yes, um, I was luckily one of those voices uh, and the, play, the plays connected and then I made my way into the larger theatres. But, but, for, but for that opportunity, there'd still be little Australian writing, drama writing. And Australia of the 1970s was, um, you know, a pretty violent place. Uh, we only have to look at the murder statistics to see that uh, uh, the Australia of today is a, is a considerably safer place. And, you know, I remember pubs being a whole lot rougher uh, at, uh, at, in that era. Um, and, and a lot of that violence ends up in, in the removalists. Is that a play you think you could, you could put on now with its, uh, its, its violence and its chauvinism? It is revived uh, quite often, uh, and often people see it in the context of its time, uh, the early 70s, which is, which is the right way to see it. But I don't think uh, the surface veneer of Australian male behaviour might have improved somewhat, but I, I doubt whether some of the darker impulses uh, have totally disappeared, Andrew. I'm, um, we love to think of ourselves as a, as a, a much more polite and non-sexist society, but the amount of sexual harassment that, that continues uh, in our society and the amount of actual... Um, uh, marital violence has actually increased in Australian society since uh, 1970. So I, I, I doubt whether we're really much better underneath um, than we were then. We're much, much better at putting on a better surface though. Um, yeah, but the removalist was a, um, a, a really um, savage satire black satire on the worst aspects of Australian male behaviour. And as I said, I don't think they've totally disappeared. Otherwise, domestic violence would be non-existent, and it's a huge problem. Yes, that's very, very true. Uh, your, um, your, your plays uh, sometimes make you laugh and gasp within minutes of, uh, of, of one another. And I guess uh, uh, I think of uh, uh, the club as being one of those. Um, what drew you into to writing about the, uh, uh, the darker side of AFL? Well, again, I've always been intrigued by the social dance, the, the, the manoeuvres we all make to thread our way through our, our social lives. Um, and I'd been, I'd been looking for something to write about. I thought, I've run out of things to write. And every, every day I was reading headlines, Coach, player fury erupts or uh, committee threatens to sack coach, um, star player um, banned for two matches, for whatever. And I suddenly realised there was a lot of drama going on right under my nose in an arena I knew very well because I was brought up as a football fan, an AFL fan. Uh, but it was the politicking, the ferocious politicking um, around football clubs that attracted me because um, um, as in your arena of politics, success is everything and deposing leaders is not unknown in your arena as well. And so um, the, um, 
uh, the, the imperative to succeed dominates the atmosphere and intensifies the politics. And so it's really uh, a, a committee meeting um, where all the ugliest and funniest motives um, uh, for self-aggrandizement and self-promotion come out. Um, it, to illustrate that it wasn't totally about football, uh, the play ran for uh, a year in Beijing and I, I wondered, I never got to see it because um, I couldn't get over it at the time, but I wondered why it was so popular. And they said, oh, you don't understand. The Chinese spend all their lives in committees with committee politicking. (laughs) (laughs) And so many of your plays have uh, relationships and and affairs at the heart of them, uh, for much of which you seem to draw on your own relationships, uh, both with, uh, with, with friends and also... Uh, infidelity, about which you're uh, stunningly candid in uh, in Home Truths, uh, has has it often got you into trouble that you've drawn on on your own life and your friends as material? Yes, uh, particularly in the early stages when I um, I just put the works on stage, and there were obvious similarities to real life incidents, um, and there were obvious um, parallels to life and there were some characters, some real life characters that recognize themselves. So um, yes, with early plays like Don's Party, um, I did get myself into a bit of trouble. Later in my career, I made sure I showed the drafts to anyone who thought they might be depicted in some way. You never depict a 100% person. You pick a few characteristics, you add a few from someone else, you add your own worst characteristics. So it's never as if you've taken a a photographic portrait of someone and put them on stage. But there's still enough to worry people um, at some stage. So um, when I realised that it probably wasn't a good idea to spring something like Don's Party on people before they'd (laughs) read it, I was a bit more careful. And uh, do you find that when you're drawing on your own life that 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 gives a... Uh, an air of authenticity to the dialogue that you can't get if you're just uh, delving into your imagination? Yeah, well, I I suddenly realised, look, uh, an early play I wrote was an imitation of someone else's style and it was okay, but it wasn't authentic. And I suddenly realised that um, there are only two real sources of material for a writer, that's the life they see around them and observe closely and analyse because they know that's real. They've been through it themselves. Or what is loosely called the imagination, which more often than not is uh, unconsciously borrowing from other writers uh, over time. Um, the, the, the chances of coming up with a, a total gem of original thought are fairly small. So usually what writers call imagination is other people's work, which they don't realise they're using, but the audience often realises they're using it. They've seen that trope before. So I thought it was always important for me to draw on absolutely what I knew was authentic and true. Not that I did a tape recording of life or anything, but um, I had seen similar processes, similar power plays, uh, similar use of language, uh, and I knew it was real. 
Do you also um, carry a notebook and pick up dialogue when you're uh, on the bus or in a cafe? No, Andrew, I've never, I've never done that, except once in my life. I, I had to get the particular accent of, a, of, of an English-speaking Dane, which was so peculiar and, and uh, funny that I thought I'd better jot that one down because I'll never quite get it. But usually, no, never. I, it all springs um, out of your unconscious somewhere. I tend to be able to remember um, the emotional patterns of past. I, I can't remember physical objects. I wouldn't know what was in a room when I was in there, but I do, rem I do remember the emotional undercurrents and the subtexts and the power plays and the uh, defensiveness and the envy that was on display in that particular social situation. So I can reproduce that and something in the back of my mind comes up with the dialogue, which is never quite absolutely the way people speak. Um, it, as actors have, have always said, um, it's got musical rhythms in it and if they don't hit those rhythms, uh, the lines won't be as effective. And I think that's necessary on the stage. I think this stage is all about language. So even though people think they're seeing absolute vertebrum speech of the sort they'd use, it's rarely quite that. And one of the really fun aspects of uh, reading Home Truths is you do occasionally break into pl uh, a little chunk of a play, uh, often which is... Uh, 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 your way of telling and doing dialogue, uh, so uh, so you, I, I suddenly feel like I'm reading a play script midway through. But what is there to to writing good conversation in plays? Um, you, you drop one one hint, which is that you shouldn't uh, talk about an emotion; you should show it. Uh, do you have others for uh, for aspiring playwrights? The, yeah, there's a couple of golden rules. You um, you don't stuff too much exposition through the dialogue to let the audience know what's going on or it becomes false. Like, like when you say, oh, Jane, I saw you last week and we talked about this, didn't we? And then we did that and um, um, uh, that's death to drama um, because it's not actual drama, it's information. Um, and um, another thing to avoid is, is completely on the nose dialogue where people are expressing things, emotions that they never would really express in everyday life, uh, but, but the dramatist wants this full-on explanation to, uh, to happen. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, you pick up a few things on the way, but most of it just comes from the deep unconscious or somewhere it comes pouring out and it's subtly changed from real dialogue to rhythmic dialogue even though the change is not huge it's there and if the actors don't get it they don't get it it, it doesn't work so there's this notion of creativity uh, which is that uh uh, those creative geniuses who produce their best work young tend to be more plot-driven and those who produce their best work at older ages tend to be more character-driven. Uh, as somebody who has been extraordinarily productive at the top levels uh, right through from, uh, from a young age to an older age, have you found that 
plot has has diminished and 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 you've put more emphasis on characters as you've gone on. Oh, I think I was also always fascinated in characters, and as I say, the social dance that we all go through to get through our lives. Um, so characters have always been very important to me. Trying to work out what temperament this uh, character has, what are his yeah, is he obsessive compulsive is he hostile um, is he open to new experience all all the major dimensions of personality you try and nut out for your um your characters and um so i've always been into that but i've also been very big on dramatic momentum which you could call structure if you don't keep the story moving if you don't keep the audience guessing what happens next, David Marmot said, why do people come to plays? To see what happens next. If they stop worrying about what happens next, you've lost them. So yes, dramatic, I'd, put, I'd call it dramatic momentum, momentum has always been um, uh, a key feature of my thinking about a play. It's really got a drive, like learn from the masters. So Shakespeare didn't waste time. Um, King Lear, Okay, daughters, three daughters here. Goneril, Regan, Cordelia, I'm going to split up my empire. I'll give you a third each if you tell me how much you love me. Pretty blatant. Um, and, of course, Regan and Goneril um, lie their teeth out that they love him beyond belief and, and Cordelia just says she loves him as much as she should as a good daughter and he's ra rapidly angry, casts her out. All that happens in a page and a half, and boom, the play is off and running. So Shakespeare knew how to get a play up and running and how to keep the momentum going, and I think I learned that lesson. You say at one point that uh, everything rests on the ending, that a play can't be a great play unless it has a great ending. Um, but Shakespeare seems to be an exception to that. Um, his plays don't always have cracker endings. Is it just that for mere mortals the ending rule applies? Oh, look, it helps if you've got a satisfying ending. Um, an ending that nobody can quite predict. But when it happens, they say, oh, yes, I should have seen that coming, yeah. Um, Shakespeare's endings usually uh, were, were pretty good. I mean, they're usually pretty bloody as, <laughs> as well. <laughs> the, you, the final scenes often had a lot of gore and uh, a lot of scores being settled, um, uh, which is... Uh, a satisfying way um, to see the villain. But on the other hand, you know, the comedies, everyone gets married, the uh, tragedies, everyone dies. You know, I, I feel like I could predict the ending of a Shakespeare play I hadn't seen. Yeah, but everyone getting married when we feel they should is a great ending because um, uh, Chekhov used to specialise in uh, what you say, the endings that weren't as satisfying but were haunting because we saw who the right two people were that should get together and he teased us all through the play. Yes, yes, they're going to get together and then right at the end, no, they don't. And you go, oh, my God. But um, it, it gives, certainly gives his work a depth and resonance. But Shakespeare, no, I think that's great if the right people do get married in the end. That's a rom-com. And um, if... If the villains get their just desserts, that's a very satisfying ending. We're all waiting for that bastard to, uh, to um, like Richard III, um, absolute Machiavellian, um, uh, ruthless, 
um, we can't wait for him uh, to, um, to come unstuck. So I want to push a little harder on your productivity. What is the David Williamson production function? Uh, you, you say you never had writer's block. Um, you start with about a four or five-page outline. You do 10 to 20 drafts. Uh, is there anything else about the way in which you work? Did you have word targets? Did you have a daily routine that, that you felt served you particularly well in producing this in extraordinary body of work? Well, um, thank you. I, um, yeah, look, I think there was a rhythm to the plays because the major theatre companies had to have their subscription brochures, uh, what they were offering to the public for the next year out by about September. So I had to have a, a draft that the theatre company was happy with by hopefully March, hopefully earlier, because then they had to cast it and get good names in it to put in the brochure. Um, so I was working to a timetable, if, if you like. But um, in terms of when I started working, well, I had to get the idea that I thought would carry it and that was a hard part at the start. I had to find something in my social environment that grabbed me, made me emotionally involved, and if I found that, it might make the audience emotionally involved. And once I had that, gather the characters around, work out the conflicts that were going to drive the drama, um, work out a rough outline, and then the heady business of getting into the writing and things happening as you're writing. Um, David Marmot, the American playwright, said, if I don't surprise myself when I'm writing, I'm never going to surprise the audience. So some of the writing evolves as it's going. You know your characters, you know the conflicts, you know roughly where it's going, but you never quite know where it's going. And sometimes that can get out of hand and that's why you need the 10 or 15 more drafts to get it back into shape. Um, but the work habits, yeah, I was a workaholic because I was... Um, I was addicted, in a sense, right from the first time I got that feeling of my words in actors' mouths connecting with an audience and meaning something to their lives. That's a huge buzz. And once you've had that buzz, you want it again. It's like a, it is, it's a form of addiction. So I got tense, excited and driven when I finally got onto writing that draft ready for the next year. And my wife, Kristen, luckily is a writer as well, so she was a little forgiving about my, um, my level of obsession during that part of the process. When you're working well, do you, do you work all day or do you have uh, disciplines in terms of how you, when you start and when you, uh, when you finish? Yeah, when I was in the exciting phase of creating the first draft of a play, um, I was in that process called flow. You just don't notice that time has passed. And you look at your watch and you're really annoyed that it's five o'clock. It can't be five o'clock. It must only be two o'clock, but it's five o'clock. So when you're totally absorbed, you just don't notice the time going and um, you want to spend more time. But usually I was able to break off for the evening meal back in the old days with the family and um, relax over a bottle of wine with Kristen, but not truly relax in that stage because the, the thoughts are still 
the problems that you, you haven't solved and the thoughts are still buzzing through your skull and you're trying to pretend you're listening to everyone. And, and yeah, but, uh, but Kristen would catch me out and say, she'd see the glazed look in my eyes and say, now, now what did I just say? <laughs> yeah. And um, usually there was a sort of a circuit somewhere at the back of my brain that would record it without me knowing and I was able to say what she said. And um, but but she said, yeah, but you didn't really take it in, did you? Oh yes, I did. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's a, a, a writer with a full head of steam uh, who just has to get that work completed um, is a little difficult to live with as a father and a and a husband. Now, you're unashamedly on the progressive side of politics, uh, a dewy-eyed Whitlamite, but I was also struck by uh, the way in which you talk about your visits in 1970 to Denmark and the United States, and uh, uh, you seem as as troubled by both, uh, equally troubled by each country, and uh, uh, obviously your... Uh, concerns over identity politics are, are surfaced in uh, dead white males, um, but it seems to reflect a, uh, a sense that I get coming through your book that class is what dominates and rather than gender or, or religion or race. Um, do you do, do you have a sense that that maybe uh, you know that is a uh, uh, an, in, an increasingly marginalised view. It, it it could be. Look, I'm not I'm not downplaying the importance of identity politics. Those groups in society who have been ignored, mistreated, uh, and humiliated, um, sometimes they may feel that they've been ignored and humiliated a little more than they have, but maybe. Uh, but obviously they they have been and they're entitled to voice their anger and um, make um, make the statement that the identity the well-being of the identity of their particular group who has been mistreated is important above all else in the meantime we've gone from a society that was the mo- had the most even distribution of income in the world in 1962 no the second most i think U- yugoslavia was the first most to i think the third worst um, income disparity in the world as ceos get millions upon millions of dollars every year and bonuses on top of that income inequality uh, is is debilitating for a country. The, the bigger the spread of haves, have-nots, the more the social tensions. But I wanted to push you a little bit, David, just on the uh, the tension between those those various concerns. Um, you know, uh, well, you've got Steve in Dead White Male saying, go for co yourself. Um, but you've also say in, uh, in Home Truths um, that... Uh, there's, uh, uh, I'll quote you here, uh, of dead white males. The play wasn't arguing that the patriarchy didn't exist or that women or minority groups hadn't been oppressed, but that a lot of white males on the lower rungs of the hierarchical ladder, the serfs, the slaughtered military conscripts, the mine workers, the toilers and the dark satanic mills, had also been victims of male power structures. 
Do you think it's harder to put on plays that talk about the concerns of um, the white working class? Yes, it is, yeah. Um, and um, my plays, I have to admit, haven't concentrated on that aspect. They've been mainly about the social dance done by our middle-class Anglo-Celtic Australians because that's what I've been fascinated in. Um, but um, yes, uh, I, I think um, the rise of Trump was a lot to do with the disgruntled um, uh, white working-class males. Um, they're a formidable force when their fury is roused and not a very pleasant force. Um, see, the, the, the Conservatives have pulled a wonderful contract since Reagan by pretending to be like, like Scoma, good bloke, rugby player, I'm for, the, I'm for the ordinary man. Oh, yeah, sure you are for the ordinary man. You're for Gina Reinhart and uh, all the top end of town. But you pretend you're for the ordinary man because you lambast political correctness. And the ordinary man hates political correctness, so we're on your side. Uh, and that trick works. It's worked for years and years and years. And the Labor Party has never quite pointed out that these guys aren't on your side. They are on the side of wealth, power and privilege. Uh, and it's a good game for them to play that they are just one of you and looking after yours and stopping these horrible feminists and stopping these horrible... Um, uh, ethnic groups who are whinging and complaining. It is a, a white male working class backlash. The fact that Labor has lost so many of those votes to the Conservatives, in a sense voting against their own economic interests, is, as Paul Keating warned at our dinner party many years ago, if you go overboard about identity politics, you've lost the, 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 the white male working class who used to be the backbone of your electoral support. Uh, Ezra Klein argues that uh, the, what's going on in the universities and the theatres can often uh, lead society by, uh, by a, de a decade, whereas uh, electoral results can, uh, can lag by, uh, by, by a decade. And so you get simultaneously the rise of Trump, but also uh, the Oscars So White movement, which has led to now requirements for diversity for films to be considered in the, uh, in the Oscars. Um, and uh, in a sense, a sense among uh, progressives that they're losing electorally, a sense among conservatives that they're losing in the entertainment sphere. Um, if you were putting on Don's party for uh, the upcoming federal election, uh, who would be in it? Uh, what would it look like and from a sort of uh, uh, diversity standpoint? Oh, I I'm sure um, diversity would be represented um, more highly. It wasn't the Australia I knew in 1972, but it's increasingly the Australia I, um, I know uh, today. Um, I still think our Asian Australian population is underrepresented uh, on stages. I think at long last our Aboriginal, our First Nations population is increasingly represented, particularly on our stages and on our television dramas. Um, no, that's look. I'm not arguing against that. Everyone has a right for their own um, presence on 
our stages because their own presence is here in, in Australia. Um, I, I, I'd say in, if I was writing Don's party now, um, they could cast any one of the um, parts as um, someone of Greek, Asian, um, First Nation extraction, uh, and no one would bat an eyelid. You have a, uh, a surprising amount of home truths, which is focused on uh, uh, reviewers and uh, and your critics, uh, and it's striking to me, given your extraordinary success, that you care about the critics. Uh, I would have thought, as somebody who is packing the theatre, that that would be enough. But um, but there's a lot of you know um, discussion of, of the late Bob e- Bob Ellis in there, for example, and uh, and your responses to Bob Ellis. Um, do you do you feel as though you let the critics get to you a, a bit too much? Oh, I did, but I berate myself in Home Truths for being oversensitive to, to the critics. I, I I note how much wasted effort and time uh, I devoted to answering them back, which is a futile exercise. I now, in hindsight, see it was uh, particularly the first part of my career. I mean, Alice was a different proposition. Alice was not loose tongue to an extraordinary degree and could be extremely vituperative. Um, and uh, I just objected to being his whipping boy for so long. Uh, so if I, you know, I, I protest against that, that's not the, the ordinary run of critics. He was a personal critic, whereas the, the other critics were critics of my, my work. But I do berate myself as I say in Home Truths, for, for being oversensitive. Um, it was a psychic shock, you see. I was Dave a good guy, tertiary teacher, loved teaching his students. They liked me, I liked the staff, I got on with everyone, I had a lot of friends, nobody hated me. And then suddenly you become prominent in the arts and you realise the arts is a seething bed of envy uh, and uh, that if you put yourself up there, Going to be them. They're going to try and knock you down and they're going to try and belittle you. Uh, all, all those photos of the young playwright with the long hair and the leather jackets in the glossy magazines, they were stirring up waves of hatred from all those who wanted to be in the glossy magazines. And so suddenly it was a psychic shock to be not Davo nice guy, but Davo poser, pseudo-fraud, tape recorder of people's private lives. Um, uh, yeah, it took me a while to, 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 to realise that if you are lucky enough to be able to write and get your work produced, you've got to be prepared for the fact that, um, A, some people will legitimately not like it. Uh, nobody can please everyone. But B, there's a lot of envy out there and a lot of what comes back at you will because, be because they want to be what you are. Um, so, But on the other hand, the legitimate critics shouldn't have worried me as, as much as they, they did. But it's, it's a sad human predisposition to worry about the negative uh, more than you do the positive. There are a lot of positive things being said about me and a lot of positive crits as I look back on my album. 
But you tend to take those for granted. Oh, he's, of course I'm brilliant. Yeah, why, why wouldn't I be? And, uh, and the negative ones, you... Ah, um, and it's not just me. I think it's the history of arts, the, the, the story of what people have... Uh, artists have done to their critics over the years with cricket bats and God knows what. There's uh, there's a volume of them, um, and I uh, yeah it was it was futile, um, but um, I, I I think I got a bit better as I got older at realizing that it was no good. Uh, spending all my life and energy worrying about the ones that were nasty. Some of your contemporaries uh, dealt with that uh, by leaving the country. You know, I think about uh, Peter Carey and Jermaine Greer, Clive James, uh, making the decision that uh, Australia of the late 1960s, early 1970s uh, was too small to contain their creative talents. Were you ever tempted to, uh, to, to make a, a permanent shift overseas? Not really, because I knew in my heart that I was an Australian writer, that, that what I did... I'd, I'd learned the culture. I'd subconsciously absorbed the speech patterns, the behaviour, the way of use of the people around me. What was the good of transplanting myself to a new culture and trying to learn it? Yeah, futile, uh, because I'd learned it from six months up. Uh, and yeah, look, it's interesting that Peter Carey did go to New York, but. So many of his novels are still set in Australia. That's that's his heartland. That's his the place that he knows. Um, you can never quite leave. If you're a writer, you can never leave your country behind. If you're an actor, you can adopt a, a wonderful American accent and transport your skills internationally with no trouble at all. If you're a director, likewise. Um, but writers, if they're honest and truthful. I mean, they write about what they know and it's taken them a long time, consciously and unconsciously, to learn that. I mean, you'd, you'd never see Tim Winton, a quintessential Australian writer, thinking, oh, I better go to England because I'll get more recognition there. He knows his work is rooted here. Yes, I feel like uh, every time Tim Winton goes for a swim in the ocean that uh, he adds another uh, gorgeous sentence to the next no next novel. Uh, so without without his immersion in Western Australia, we wouldn't get get the uh, the texture of it. And similarly, without your immersion in Australian culture, we wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have gotten the plays that uh, that you you produced. Flaubert, uh, the French novelist, said, "All great art is provincial." And by that, he meant that if you really want to make things real, you've got to get the surface details and the mannerisms and the language of your culture right. The human universals underneath that will take care of themselves. Just make sure you get your culture right and um, it'll ring true. Yes, and Tip O'Neill said that all politics is local, but we've still got the United Nations. So, uh, so there's there's different levels at which you can operate, and and I think uh, your your choice is very much one of being in Australia and telling our stories to to, to an Australian to an Australian audience in a in a particular era. 
um, and that uh, that notion with without without doing that, I don't think you would have uh, been the the person that produced uh, an STC play every year for, uh, for for decades as you as you were and uh, uh, you know shaped the com- the conversation on so many of these big issues. Well, that's very kind of you. Um, uh, yeah, I'm glad I stayed here, and um, I'm, I'm glad to call Australia home for all the for all the faults I identify. Um, uh, it's it's a pretty uh, good country to live in uh, in all kinds of respects. David, let me finish off by asking a couple of questions I ask all my, all of my interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Carry your dream of becoming a writer. Don't give it up. But <laughs> be a little aware of the negative side that's going to happen when it happens. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I must be a troglodyte because I don't think I, 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 I've changed my beliefs all that much over the years. I, I certainly have broadened my, since I was a, a, a kid, broadened my opinions about social behaviour gay marriage, all of that. Um, I can remember thinking when I first heard about homosexuality when I was a, about 11 or 12, I was horrified at the thought. Uh, so, yeah, things, things uh, society progresses and, as you say, social attitudes uh, get more progressive and with any luck you get carried along and agree with that. And two, your attitudes on monogamy seem to have shifted. Uh, you talk with some regret about the affairs in your, uh, uh, in both your both your marriages, uh, and uh, and about how it took a while to to work work through to to where you are now. It wasn't until I realised what I nearly lost in my relationship with Kristen, and she let me know in uncertain terms I was about to lose it. Um, that I realised how stupid my impulsive behaviour had been and what was under threat because of it. And from that time on, that severe jolt, uh, I've never even thought of being anything under... Because I'm, I'm very lucky to have her, you know, in, in, in considering what I did back then. But I must say, for 35 or more years now, I've been perfect. When are you most happy? Uh, with friends, family, well, with, with Chris. Oh, it's amazing how many times we dine out together and have, have, have great fun. Uh, she always can, she's got an endless stream of amazing anecdotes about her childhood that I've never heard before. I occasionally hear about old boyfriends I've never heard before either, but uh, she is, uh, she's a great storyteller. Most of her heritage is Irish, and so uh, of course she is, but... Um, so it's amazing how much uh, pleasure I get out of just her company. But then add the family, add friends, uh, the social environment. It, we're, we're, we're intensely social creatures. Um, we're also egocentric monsters sometimes, but um, we're social creatures and that social network um, is so necessary for a, a healthy and enjoyable life. What's your ideal size of a dinner party? My ideal... Size of a dinner party. You sound like you're a, an aficionado of putting on dinner parties. You must have thought about the optimal number of people to have around the table. Oh, six or eight. If it gets bigger than that, 
you, the conversations can never uh, stay focused with that group. They split into little parts and some person's got stuck with some boring person, perhaps me, all the, all the, all the meal. And um, uh, so uh, I think um, six or eight or sometimes even four is fun. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? When I'm, when I'm really uh, um, wanting to free myself of stress, I, I do a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. Um, uh, I was thrown recently when my little grandkids gave me a 2,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. That was almost beyond me. I said, please, no, no more. Have you done jigsaw puzzles for, uh, for, for decades or is this a, a new, uh, new hobby? Oh, relatively new. It's, it's rather like um, creating a play. You see, you've got to get all the right pieces in the right places and then the whole adds up to something. And finally, David, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, a few, um, a few people. Um, there was one of my um, good university friends who was much more principled than I was. And I remember this very clearly that I wanted to get away with my girlfriend. I wanted to, I was working in vacation work with, and I wanted to lie to my bosses that I had to go and get a, a new illness or something. Um, and he just said, "Look, David, why don't you tell the truth? Just say you want to, uh, uh, you you." Really, so you want a couple of days off, and I thought, oh, that's a revelation. Tell the truth, <laughs> and that stayed with me. And I, I try and do that now. Well, David Williamson, uh, bard, storyteller, uh, and uh, uh, shaper of the Australian polity. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. It's been a great pleasure, Andrew. All the very best. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out past episodes with actor Sheridan Harbridge, uh, director John Bell, uh, and also composer Carl Vine. If we're aiming to get The Good Life podcast out to more people, the best way is through word of mouth. So if you have a moment to mention it to a friend, uh, talk about it on social media, uh, or even just give it a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, please do. Uh, it helps the podcast reach more people. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.